if you've been missing us, we're back after a couple weeks off with another episode of Stuff That Matters. We come back strong with the strong and powerful message of Danya Perry. Danya is currently the Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for Wake County and Raleigh. He's had the pleasure of serving as an education and community advocate for the last 20 years. We talk about how he got into working with kids and community, spearheading statewide initiatives aimed at school violence prevention, dropout prevention, disproportionate minority confinement, and community mobilization. We also discuss how he has assisted many organizations in their mission to ensure academic proficiency, provide a conducive learning environment, and mobilize the community around youth. If, while listening to Danya, you think to yourself, you know, he'd make a great local elected official, you're probably not wrong, although he does respond to that at the end. Danya has, however, co-authored several books, including Preventing Violence and Crime in America's Schools, From Put-Downs to Lockdowns, which speaks to the need for early prevention, and The Secrets of Motivating, Educating, and Lifting the Spirits of African-American Males. Danya had one of the most soothing demeanors to the way he conducted himself and presented his insights. You could easily hear just how passionate he is and how pure he is. So uh, enough of me talking and giving you more of a reason to enjoy our interview with Danya Perry. Here he is. Joining us today on Stuff That Matters is Danya Perry. He's currently the Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for Wake County up in Raleigh, North Carolina. He's had the pleasure of serving as an education and community advocate for the last 20 years. Danya, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you all for the invitation. So, so Danya, as, as we were talking a little bit before this thing started recording, um, I mentioned uh, our goal um, in in this podcast is to bring on folks who have great stories and are doing great work with, whether it's communities or governments or you know specific kids and families, improving things for people. When that idea came, came around about a year ago for our team here at New Hope, you're one of the first people I've thought of to be on this podcast with your history, all the work that you've done who you are as an individual, as a family man, and who you are in the community. So I just wanted to start with, it's such a pleasure having you on our Stuff That Matters podcast. And I'd love for you to take a, a minute and just tell us, tell us your, you know, how you got to where you are today, because you've certainly evolved in your uh, professional career path since we met. Yeah, no, I, and, and it's hard to kind of, you know, this feels very, this is your life-ish, you know, uh, for all the all, all the old heads in the room that that remember, you know, Robin coming in and sort of just, you know, giving you the ins and outs. And so, you know, I'm 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 from New Bern, um, born and raised, um, and well, born in Elizabeth City, but raised in New Bern. And so, down east is always a part of who I am in a in a rural community. But it was also an anchor community to more rural parts of the community of the of the region. Um, but one of the things that was just always instilled from 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 me in the beginning, 
having a father who was a minister uh, and a mother who was an activist in the community. Um, you know, it was always about service. You know, it was always about giving to others. It was always about putting other people first. And, you know, one of the things that I will always take with me was um, my father was a big sort of, you know, you leave things better than when you first got there, you know. Um, and so, you know, I had this sort of steward feeling uh, about, you know, who I was and what I meant to the community. Um, now, at the same time, you're also talking about, you know, living in, uh, you know, a community that had a lot of, um, you know, challenges in itself, you know, whether it was related to poverty, um, uh, dysfunctional families, um, you know, uh, issues related to um, drug uses, substance abuse. I mean, you have all of those different things happening around you. Uh, and then, and, 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 you know, you, but you have this sort of aspirational, you know, what, what it could be, you know? Um, so, you know, we went to church on Sunday to talk about what it could be. My mother was, 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 was convening meetings with people in the community about what it could be, uh, you know, and my mother was actually one of the, uh, one of four kids that integrated, uh, New Bern High School, uh, you know, and so you got, you know, and, and, and you think about, having someone in your house that can tell the story of integration and where, you know, her father, you know, and it's interesting because most people don't understand, you know, when you get to that place, you're like, how did integration happen? Right. Like it wasn't just this magic wand and we had very diverse schools. No, it was intentional people locally uh, that fought for it. And so, you know, my grandfather who said, this is something we got to do. And understanding that you had black families that had a choice to stay in the segregated school or to integrate um, and them understanding the significance of integrating because there you have more access to resources. You got to, you know, they got better schools, they got better resources, you got better books. You know, they understood that there's something over there, but also understanding that there's violence over there waiting for you, too. You know, there's ex exclusion waiting on for you, too. There's people that don't want you there waiting there. And so if you can imagine the black community at that time coming together to say, OK, we acknowledge that there are challenges in integration, but we got to do it. So their strategy was to just send a small group of kids. Let them go first, because the the, the, the belief set was. We're not going, we want to be disarming as possible. You know, we don't want to send everybody, right? So to send for it. And the second strategy was we're going to send young girls because hopefully by sending girls, they will be less apt to be attacked by other people. And then the third strategy was to make sure that we send your children, their children in, in their Sunday best. So if you look at any of the old protest videos, you think about all the old civil rights era. I mean, you saw people in suits and the, and the belief was, right. you know, if you look a certain way, you know, then you won't be attacked, which, you know, wasn't the case all the time, but we were trying to disarm what was happening. And so that was my setting to, to get into a place of saying, what are the strategic things that you have to do to change a place where you can create some, asp some aspirational ideal of, you know, of whatever it is. So, you know, from that moving into, you know, for me, at least going from education to where I'm at now, that was part of my trajectory. Does that make sense? That's a big foundation. Mm -hmm. 
yeah. there's a belief that we can do something different. Yeah. Wow. And and you, so Danny, and for folks who don't know you, again, you've worked with the juvenile justice system, education system. Now you're kind of in the government system, all of which are probably interesting and fascinating and, and, and frustrating probably all in their own right. Let's, um, Maybe let's camp out and maybe the let's take the trajectory of your career in these kind of chunks. So let's go back to kind of DJJ world. Um, Mike shared with me, you know, a book I think you co-authored with um, Billy Lassiter. Yeah. Can you just speak to that and kind of that time and, and what was the focus and mission of y'all's work during that time? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I graduated from North Carolina State, uh, Go Pack. Uh, waited, just had to throw that out there for anybody, any haters, any Carolinians. Listen, this podcast does not make uh, any affiliations of any, you know, we're, we're, we're everybody. I'm okay. from New Jersey, so yeah, I have no affiliation. <laughs> I'm yeah. from Michigan and we're in a world of trouble right now. U of M's in a world of trouble. So it's all Oh, my goodness. Oh, well, we won't talk about any, any type of NCAA regulations. No, and no, 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 that's right. <laughs> but but I say I graduated in '98 and I had an opportunity to um, going into my graduate my senior year work with the Center for the Prevention of School Violence, which was actually a part of NC State School of Education. Uh, and at that time, the year that I worked there, our focus was around um, you know helping schools with implementing school resource officers, all the way to working around care to education. So we looked at school safety in both a people aspect and a place aspect. So it was about how are the people, you know, uh, able to manage conflict from teachers all the way to students, all the way to does your school actually need, you know, um, surveillance cameras? Does it need a metal detector? So that conversation was sort of all encompassing. In that, in that launch, in working with the Center for the Prevention of School Violence, at the same time, the juvenile justice system with the state was centralizing. So you had different part, different, you know, departments doing different things in different areas. And so the in 2000, the Department of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention was created. And at the time, the Center for the Prevention of School Violence was being courted by the Department of Public Instruction and this newly found DJJDP. And so the decisions of folks that were in higher positions than I, uh, decided that we should become a part of this new centralized DJJDP with the thought that our work can be the prevention end of juvenile delinquency prevention. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. yeah. And so at the time, you know, our work centered on uh, how do we work with schools to make sure that kids are staying in school to make sure that they do no, no longer become a part of the pipeline. School safety was a big part of that. But then at the same time, how do we reimagine the juvenile justice system for the kids that are in our system? Because we had to also acknowledge that these kids, while they may be committed to the system, their transition starts the second day that they're in, you know, so they transition back to the community. So yeah. we wanted to move from a corrections mindset where we're just, you know, the kids are just in the, you know, three hots in a cot, you know, they're just in, you know, kid jail to... What do these kids need to be successful once they leave? And so that was moving to a more of a therapeutic mindset. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. How, how have you seen, you know, I, I know you don't work for them directly anymore, but I'm sure you still have ties and relationships. You know, so when you look back, what what positive impact were you guys able to have? What's the, How does the system look, you know, from 1999, if I'm a 
15 year old who's struggling with some yeah. you know, delinquent behaviors to if I'm having those in 2023 in North Carolina, what, what is the difference right now? Wow. Well, that's a great question. I would say two big noticeable differences were one, um, we decided that, you know, the communities can actually do a better job in working with the kids. Um, so in other words, uh, we had five youth development centers, which, you know, where if a kid was committed, uh, they were sent to this facility and you may have had a kid that committed a crime in New Bern and they were sent to Swannanoa Valley and, you know, in the mountains to stay. So they are disconnected to the community that they're going back to. So one of the biggest, I think, changes was around saying, let's focus on more community based alternatives. Uh, so you had maybe 1500 kids that were in a facility at any given time in the late 90s, early 2000s, where it slowly transitioned to now, you're talking about less than 200 kids that are committed to these facilities because it moved from about, you know, okay, let's understand what's the best practice to ensure that this young person, um, you know, will one, you know, obviously not reoffend, but two, understanding that there's other social determinants of their health that is contributing to maybe that delinquent act. Uh, so that was one. The second one was raising the juvenile age. Um, and that was huge, um, you know, moving it from, you know, 16 and certain, you know, misdemeanors, moving it from 16 to 18. And, and that was huge. I think it was 2019 was when it was finally uh, put into law, uh, but that had been a 15 year um, 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 uh, sort of push uh, to us to stop looking at kids as adults when they're making decisions when, you know, I mean, my brain is finally becoming fully functional. You know, I mean, I, you know, I'm still delusional about NC State athletics, right? <laughs> so, you know, we had to think differently about, you know, that, that corrections minded, you know, somebody does something wrong, you gotta, you know, you gotta, they gotta feel the pain, right? To not so, do it when that's not changing their motivation to why they did something. So we, you know, Mike and you know, Mike and I particularly know this space really well. My my first job out of grad school was doing MST, working with mm. kids in Western North Carolina, and um, and always had you know love for that population, and and have seen the the goods and the bads and the uglies. Of it. But can you, for folks who might be uninitiated to that? What was happening before Raise the Age? Just kind of unpack that for a second. Because I remember, again, we talked about Raise the Age all the time. And honestly, um, I, since I wasn't within the DJJ system, it seemed to come. And I was in mostly in the Charlotte-Mecklenburg area when that rolled out. And I kept asking people, is this making an impact? And I couldn't get a straight answer. So can you unpack that? Because this is also not just a North Carolina thing. It's a national it was a national endeavor too. So maybe absolutely. Just and raise the age. I'd, I'd be curious about that. No, absolutely. And we are one of the last states to actually raise the uh, New York did it years right. ago, I think. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And and so so the best way to sort of paint a picture about it, um, I remember um visiting one of the facilities. And I remember, you know, visiting staff, and I'm going to be worked with the staff on whatever professional development opportunity. And I saw a 12-year-old sitting in a room crying, you know, and, 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 and you know, when a, a kid isn't wearing a sign that says I'm 12 years old, you know, I walked in the room and I was like this, you know, it was one of those moments where you're like, this kid should not be here, hmm. right? It was that, it was sort of like, 
okay, what did this kid do for them to be in this space right now? So when I inquired, you know, more about it, this was one of those times where by following the law, by the letter of, you know, it put this kid in a situation which was not appropriate for their age. Right. You know, and so the conversation really about the juvenile age was really about accountability, but more importantly, you know, development of them as individuals. And and and, and so the conversation for us, you know, it was right now the juvenile, the adult age. In other words, if you committed a crime uh, and you're 16 years old, you were referred to the court system, the adult court system. The adult court system. Right? Yeah, you're in the adult court system. Uh, but what we're saying is, is no, at 16, you are still developing uh, as a young person and your decisions making isn't there in full capacity. So what we're saying is we want to keep kids up to 18. We want to keep them in the juvenile system where there's more flexibility uh, around how we work with them, you know, uh, and there's more opportunities to do more community based interventions. You know, there's more opportunities because we're still looking at them as, as young people. You know, the therapeutic approach. And this is no not being dismissive to the adult system. Uh, but what we know is that, you know, we have sight and sound separation of young people and adults for a reason. You know, and you don't want a 16 year old in the same facility as a 35, 40 year old where we know that there's going to be some model mentoring in another way. Yeah. Right. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you, as, as the it's still early in North Carolina's history but overall is the data showing that that's a that that's been a positive thing for our communities you know and and i'll we'll have you'll have to um if you really want to get the nitty gritty around the 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 efficacy of the work you know i would highly suggest you get up with billy Lasseter yeah, and billy. This. Okay. i really think and, and that but i will say anecdotally and having conversations and sort of looking at it from afar and you know i'm, I'm and, and also launching programs that help kids re-enter back into the system, uh, back into the community uh, since leaving juvenile justice. I know that we were looking at, if, uh, at a state level, 54,000 kids that were going to transition from adult to juvenile once that law was passed. Oh, so kids. 50, 54,000, right? Coming down from a corrections, adult corrections to juvenile justice. And so the juvenile justice system was preparing itself to figure out how can we make sure that we have capacity to deal with, you know, and they did it strategically, you know, how, I mean, they did, but, but what I do know from the practitioners is that what they found is that, you know, not only was this the right thing to do, but it actually prevents the pipeline being built to the adult side, because you remember that these systems are now has since centralized where, because now it's, a larger entity where the adult and juvenile justice system is the same, the same department. Right. And so you have folks working with each other. It's, it's like the, the, the pipeline got to look that shrunk a little bit more, you know, between the, the administrating agencies, if you will. And so you can really see where, okay, it's almost like taking, I'm in a juvenile, I'm in the juvenile side of the building and I'm taking caseworker information to the adult side of the building, you know, but we're saying like what's happening in between. Right. And so I think anecdotally, you're seeing folks on the adult juvenile, just the adult side saying, you know, well, we need to change our practices to make sure that because there's something that can happen on the juvenile side that we can't do or we don't have the capacity to do. So 
Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of different, you know, I think that the, the proof will be in the pudding in 10 years. Um, but the direction and tra the trajectory that the system was going in, I don't see this being not a smashing success. I mean, it has to be. It's got to be, right? The mentality has changed, you know? Mindset, the shift. And I know we're going to get to more current day stuff with you, Danya, but can you speak a little bit to, like, when did JCPC's Juvenile Crime Prevention Councils mm -hmm. come into play? Was that during the shift in 2000-ish? Or was wow. that... Was that written in the law then or were they around like what can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, you know, and and I, I could not give you the exact date, but I'm talking, you know, the juvenile crime prevention councils, whether they were in the way that they operate now or before, it was all about community collaboratives. Right. You know, it was always about this concept of how do we wrap the community around the young people that need services and support. And and, and we've looked at it, I mean, it's done, it was you know, there was communities that care. There's community collaboratives, uh, but ultimately the goal was uh, identifying kids that were in the system. How can we make sure we provide bubble wrap, you know, through all of these community resources coming together to support said one kid? Um, and a big part of it, you know, it being done amazingly, it's that you also deal with or eliminate any redundancy of services. So you serve not only that child, but you also serve that family. So, Danya, you know, when when Mike brought up JCPC, my mind went to a couple directions that I'm curious about. So I am um, at my last organization. We worked closely with JCPC in Mecklenburg County, which was a really interesting experience. Okay. Um, they funded, I think, some really important programs. I love, get, you know, I, I love the JCPC um, ability to support some grassroots stuff that really there's not another funding source for. You know, I'm a. I'm in the mental health field, so I, I got, I'm in the insurance industry, and I see how much, how many things insurance should pay for but doesn't pay for because it doesn't consider it treatment, mm -hmm. like it's like after school programs, basketball camps, stuff like this. That honestly, as a mental health guy, that stuff's as important to people, you know, to young person's mental health as any sure. fancy therapy is going to be. But insurance doesn't pay for it, so those programs have a hard time, you know being financially viable without support. So I love that about JCPC. My one bone that I always picked with JCPC was it's the Juvenile Crime Prevention Council. Yeah. And But we're only working with kids who are already in the system. So inherently, yeah. we're not preventing, we're already intervening, we're intervention, we're not prevention. And I would try to sell them sometimes on some programs that looked like you know, hey, if you got, you know, maybe fund some of this stuff, but maybe fund some early childhood development yeah. work, maybe some like early childhood mentoring work. Cause like I get we spend all I get we spend a lot of time on the current 17 year old. Yeah. But what about the current seven year old who's his little brother who's coming behind? And I know you're a huge prevention guy. So maybe, maybe take that and run with it. And like, how, how are you seeing these systems? Cause I just think our systems suck at being preventative. Like we just don't know how to do it. Um, and mm -hmm. I don't know if it's a human thing because, Humans were naturally not very preventative focused. Like we're we're all reactive by nature, but yeah. yeah, how does that play out in some of these systems? No, I mean that's a. That, I think that's one of those conversations that most youth serving practitioners would say. If um, if I could spend, so I, at one point the uh, the spend for a kid uh, for one year in um, um, a juvenile facility was one hundred twenty three thousand uh, dollars a year. And, and people would say, you know, what could I do um, at a school-based site 
or after school program with $123,000, right? So, so there's always that sort of cost benefit analysis and, 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 and opportunity cost and, and having, and, and, and these conversations, I think, led us from this more correctional minded to this more therapeutic approach. But what we find is that sometimes the system in itself, you know, like it, the way it operates, it's just tough to change. You may have people that are ready to change. But it's almost like, uh, and I always jokingly say, it's like trying to organize a bunch of feral cats, you know, to all move in this direction. And then you have the churn of new administration, new leadership, new. So I think there's this intent to do what you're saying, which is to put more funds into uh, uh, into alternatives that will prevent. But you have, you know, this huge funding source that, you know, has has a legislative intent that says it is for this. And, mm-hmm. you know, and so even if we change the name, it doesn't change. We could put, you know, John, Juvenile Crime Intervention Council, right? But it still doesn't change the, the fact that people believe that that prevention is the answer, right? To prevent things from occurring. And so I think you have more people that are truly investing in that ide- ideology. We just have to get the system to sort of unthaw and people to continue to chip away at it to get to a place where you're like, okay, like we're, we are here, right? When we look back at how much we invest in the criminal justice system to how much we invest in the, in, 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 a, in a mentoring program, there's a little bit more equity in relationship to impact. So, you know, I don't think that those, que- those conversations haven't stalled, um, not one bit. I think they're actually getting a little bit more um, broader um, so when we talk about economic justice, you know, we're talking about inclusion and talking about the economy and how that impacts some of those social determinants of health. Where do you put your, you know, where do you put your money to make sure, you know, uh, are, are, can people actually um, uh, be uh, have, a, have a living wage uh, right. that impacts all of those elements that impact a child making a poor decision? Billy, we used to say, um, that 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 we tend to spend so much time mopping the water uh, from this flooding sink that we forget to even look and see if the if we turn the knob off, you know? Right. And so sometimes when our energy is around, I mean, because we don't stop the you know in the work around the intervention side because we we're fighting it, but then we don't have enough time to innovate, right? To think differently. To say maybe if I turn this button, maybe I push that button because we're focused on the flood that's right there at our feet. Yeah, that's a huge. I mean, you know, we're, we obviously one of the things we operate is a large twenty four seven, three hundred sixty five um, residential program, and I always tell people it's hard to do change management here because I can't close down on a Friday and reopen on a Monday. Like I can't close down on a Friday, retrain everybody, and like it's 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 a it's a cruise ship that never stops running. And so we've got to make changes while we are still actively doing the thing that we know is wrong. And then we slowly phase in the thing that is right. And hopefully eventually we get more right than wrong. Yes. But yeah. Like these kind of systems, like, you know, somewhere out there, a, a teenager is committing a crime today and somebody needs yes. to do something about that while also trying to have mental space for the six-year-old who is impoverished and has no opportunity and can't see you know, can't can't craft a future for themselves, and we know that that's problematic. But it's hard to do, hard to do two things at once like that. 
I tell people, you know, it's interesting because I always liken system and change reform like um, this old Barnum and Bailey uh, circus act of uh, the, the, the person that would spin those plates on those little sticks, yeah. you know, and, and they're like spinning them. And there they're, they're may be like 20 of them that they're spinning. And, and, and I used to always think that the trick was, you know, getting them on the stick and getting them spinning, you know, um, but but that wasn't the trick. You know, the, the trick was having them all spin at the same time. You know, the trick was keeping them all going without one falling. And then it has a domino effect on all of them, you know. And so the systems change. But to your point, you know, we're trying to spin this one and we got to go over here and spin that one. And then we're spinning this and they all got to keep spinning. Yeah. Um, but I moved my mindset to think more about, you know, um, and thinking strategically is more like double dutch. Uh, if you've ever played double dutch as a child, and I had two sisters, so they made me play. Yeah. Uh, and 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 you're you're, you're they're, they're turning the rope, and I'm trying to jump in. And this is what I see change management as. You know, you're sort of doing that rocking back and forward, trying. You're going to jump. You know, you're going to jump in there, but you got to find the right moment to jump in to have this fluid, amazing experience without getting your ankles uh, uh, <laughs> smacked by one of those ropes. So. Yeah, d- double dutch required like even just the tiniest bit of rhythm. Danya, so I was terrible at that. I would just bulldoze into a sea of uh, ropes that would hit me right in the face. So yeah, I get. I was it. usually one. I was like, "Can I hold the thing? I don't think I could jump." My wife working at New Hope is to provide students with support in the social, emotional, and academic aspect of their life. My why for being here is because these kids need somebody to hear them and see them. My why is I've been in the communities for so long with the residents, now I get the opportunity to work with the families and meet the families. My why is I like to help. I think I was born with that in my nature, so I like helping. I help everyone in the building as well as our residents and their families. My why is because I want to create a safe environment, a comfortable environment for my students to be able to learn and grow. I put smiles on kids' faces that I love seeing every single day. I am at New Hope because this is a place that inspires change for young kids and for adults. I'm here in New Hope working to make a difference in these young girls' and boys' lives, giving them an example of what a role model should be and leading them and guiding them in the right direction. My why for being in New Hope is the residents. I love the kids. It's awesome. My why is seeing the change and the process being made. It's just awesome to see them come in, not want to be here. Then they get here, it's like being a family. So, so Danya, the work you're doing now I'm not sure how this is going to land, but do you consider it prevention work? Mm. I mean, the work that you can you talk a little bit about what you've evolved into economic development, inclusion, equity, all that. And, and how do you see that in the world of kids, families and prevention? It, yeah, it, it's all tied together, I would assume. No, I've, I've, it's almost like thinking about it as um, um, an opportunity to reassess the, the 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 structure of the house so what's going on in the house you know we know that in this kitchen is maybe not functioning functioning the way that it needs to be and you have a bathroom that you know is maybe not functionally what it's supposed to be and you got you know and, and but but we all inherited that house 
right? And so we got to have somewhere to live, right? Um, and so within the work with the county, it's focusing in on, you know, from all of our services that impact all of our communities, is looking at the architectural equity, you know, looking at saying, you know, because none of us go, we oftentimes don't go into a space and say, you know, like for me, you know, I, I inherited this office. And when I came into this office, there was already a stapler, right? And so I went and grabbed that stapler and I used it, you know, but I never questioned where did this stapler come from? You know, I never broke it apart to see, does it work the way it's supposed to work? You know, my assumption is, well, it was there. Uh, and somebody, you, they may have used it before. I don't know if it was effective, but I'm going to trust it. Um, and so we understand that most, some of our most marginalized communities have been impacted by systems that were with, that we all inherited. And so there's this approach to looking at uh, to get to diversity and inclusion is by being equity centered and having an equity lens and anything that we do. And that means looking at policies. That means looking at programs, fund allocation, looking at practices, looking at my own personal bias as a professional. Uh, how do all of those things play into creating a more equitable decision? You know, we believe that well-intentioned people create inequities every single day. And the majority of the inequities are because of well-intentioned people that don't have the time to innovate, strategize, you know, you're trying to plug in that hole, but at the same time, create a whole new infrastructure that will create a more equitable practice. And so our office has been dedicated to both, you know, internal and also to the community at large is to push the pause button and, and, and have us help quarterback some of those changes and those equity challenges that you see. It's almost like going to sort of in the, in the corporate private space. Think about like Six Sigma and Lean Canvas. You know, it's sort of that, you know, this how how can we create more efficiencies on this on this belt line, you know? And, and so a part of creating those efficiencies means that we have to give time and space for people to grow. You know, for me as an individual to 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 look at myself, to put the mirror to myself, uh, and to really take some time to say, how do I impact these larger systems? So my work, while it is the larger sort of architecture of the house, it is impacting all the other service deliveries that support our residents at large. And with the true north being inclusive prosperity, that means if you want to participate in the economy, if you want to, you know, be gainfully, you know, it, the opportunity is there and there will be no personal identifier that could be a correlation of success or failure, you know? If you are participating and you're doing all that you can and there's no restrictions, there's no barriers, then we can be successful. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's and there's there's so many different directions we could go in there. So right now you're working for Wake. You're, you're in the Wake County government, right? I, I yes. always heard. So, again, I'm kind of more from the Mecklenburg. I live just south of Charlotte. OK, Um but when I worked in a Charlotte-based nonprofit, we often cited, I think there was a couple zip codes within Mecklenburg County that are some of the worst zip codes to be born into in the entire country for upward economic mobility. Like the, mm -hmm. the stats on if you're born into this zip code, the likelihood that you will be stay in poverty for generations to come is, you know, some astronomically high. And and also the likelihood that you will never move out of that zip code is incredibly high. And then, again, I think 
that intersection, again, my, my first job out of grad school doing MST and doing in-home work out in kind of Western North Carolina. You know, I grew up um, looking back, you know, I think growing up, you don't know what you're growing up as because you're just growing up, you know, and then you kind of reflect back on. And I grew up as comfortably middle class for my whole life, you know, and, and had, had parents. I had a, my dad was a pastor and my mom worked at a university. And so I, I, I grew up comfortable. Um, so really kind of when I started getting into community based work is when I think I started getting really exposed to the, uh, the, you know, the integration of poverty, opportunity, mental health, kid behavioral issues, and how all of these things kind of, you know, layer on top of each other. And, um, you know, I, you know, I, I don't think there's anything more almost, you know, we're in the intervention space, I think, at, at New Hope. By the time kids get to us, they are years and yeah. probably generations deep into the system. And I'm a, I'm a natural optimist, but sometimes I read our kids' profiles and it's hard not to get pessimistic about you know their future so I, I think there's like there's probably no more important work that we can do than actually like set a better you know stage set the table better set the game yep. set the rules of the game better um so that it's not such an uphill uphill battle um i remember i I'd usually take some of my teenage kids i worked with um to college campuses in north carolina Sometimes I'd take them to, you know, NC State. Sometimes I'd go to App State or something. But um, it became really clear within just a couple of months that none of them had ever, that wasn't even a reference point, you know. Yeah. And I always, I always grew up, I always tell people, like, the gravity um, for me or the wind was blowing me towards college. If I, if I didn't yeah. go to college, that would have been a weird thing for my yeah. family trajectory. Now, yeah. for my mom, she was a first-generation person to get more than a high school diploma. So her... Her wind was blowing her not towards college. She had to actually, you know, make that effort to make a change generationally. But by the time I came around, I'm the beneficiary of her change. Yes. So it was already kind of natural for me. But working with kids who like their their a lot of their wind was barely blowing towards a GED, let alone college. And their their scope for what they could see, what their future could hold was so small, was so narrow. You know, I talked to kids and like they had one maybe two thing two jobs that they could think of ever doing and i think it's because their reference points only included three jobs maybe yeah. total, you know so i don't know I mean, i'm rambling at this point but it's such a big it's such a big part of the conversation so and and again i i, I love you know i also think sometimes county governments and government in general gets a bad rap it sometimes and and, and here's feeling your energy and feeling your kind of innovation the fact that you are working within government structures um, is exciting because I think those those institutions need some change agents pretty bad. Now we we have some incredible leaders here, you know, from our county manager, David Ellis, to our deputy county managers, you know, folks that sort of, you know, we, 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 we remove the numbers and we look at the name, you know, we look at like, who's impacted um, right. by our decisions and we understand we don't take it lightly, you know, from the conversation that you're saying around, um, the upper mobility, you know, that that's that that there was a seminal study that came out uh, that I think a lot of the country uh, started to rethink what are we doing to to help support the rungs of ladders, you know, so, you know, that we understand that the rungs are getting further and further apart uh, for our community, our residents to achieve uh, and to be gainfully employed and to be able to, 
uh, you know, sustained just existing. Um, and it was, uh, I think it was out of Harvard, Dr. Raj Chetty, uh, 2016. Uh, it, w- w- the disheartening part, we had certain zip codes in Wake County where uh, there was a 4% chance if you were born in that zip code and you stayed there for you to move from the bottom 20% quartile to the top 20%. So ultimately, if you were born in poverty, there was only a 4% chance that you can actually you can actually get to the top 20% uh, quartile of the economy. Um, you couldn't even sniff it. Right. And, and so the question becomes, uh, I think our the American adage was that, you know, you pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. Right. You know, if you work hard, you will go up the ladder. And we're acknowledging that, you know, there's this 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 belief that the rising tide will rise all, you know, will lift all ships. But some ships aren't seaworthy. Um, and so if we need a community's full participation for include include in, for for prosperity, that means we have to invest targeted into areas and, 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 and families and, and young people that are situated differently, you know, and, and, and it's by no fault of their own that they're situated differently and not criminalizing substance abuse, not criminalizing poverty, you know, by, by acknowledging that there was a set of systems and standards that created where they are situated differently and how can we all be responsible to make sure that they're in a position to contribute back to this larger swath of, of, of prosperity, you right. know, and it's a, and it's to me, it's, just, and we're finding now in, in local government and state conversations, national conversation, that this is a superior growth model that, 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 that with our, especially communities that are, uh, that are growing really, really fast. Um, you know, uh, where we've been in communities around the country that you had folks living in tent cities that were gainfully employed, making seventy-something thousand dollars a year, but they lived in tent cities because they couldn't afford to live in the community that they worked in, and they stayed in tents during the work week and then drove two hours to their home, which was you know, because that was the place where they could afford to stay. Uh, you know, so the conversation needs to be had at both ends where. We're not only looking at our most marginalized, disenfranchised community members, but it's also not outpacing our community. It's about growing responsibly, understanding that, you know, that there's this pace that we have to consider. Um, We have to probably reevaluate measures of success as well. You know, so anyway, now you're going to get me, you know, we we spoke with a friend um, who's in the homeless services business on the podcast a few weeks ago and you know we talked a lot about misconceptions around homeless um individuals and is it an intersection of mostly addiction or mental illness and she said yeah but it's mostly the account it's it's economics actually it's mostly a math game and you know where you find um rising rising expenses without affordable housing you find more homeless people like that and that's not um so that 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 strikes me too. So that that kind of actual like not all growth um, is good growth. Like not all just rapid expansion is necessarily good if it's only good for seven percent of us. Absolutely, um, that actually could have a long term net negative on the whole community. I'm I'm a fan of growth. You know, I'm a fan of growth. Uh, you know, but it's not they grow; it's we grow, right? 
Um, and, and I think when we get away from thinking of it in silos, um, and, and, you know, and again, you know, our system is one of, it feels very competitive, right? You know, the economy is competitive. You know, you have have and have nots. Uh, but once the haves acknowledge that those that have not can, contrib- can contribute to you having more, uh, you know, or even having some more equity and shared resources and power, I mean, it'll just create a better experience for, for us all. Um, you know, and that's, again, um, I love that, you know, I'm Gen X, you know, I'm old. All right. Yeah. So as, as, as my son says, you know, I, you know, I, I listened to hip hop back in the late 1900s, you know, <laughs> I'm like, son, that was 1995, son. Like, yeah, the late 1900s, you know. Don't say it like that. Yeah. That's, that's I'm just telling that's you. That's the meanest way for him to say that. Yeah. He's, he's a cold, he's cold hearted. You know, he doesn't care. <laughs> But 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 I I am excited about that Gen A's the Generation Alphas, you know their mindset of how we're setting them up, you know to change. Like we are right now passing the torch to them to yeah. start thinking about how do they reimagine this world to to operate differently. And I had a chance to sit with a group of uh, uh, um, students from um, this this Cary uh, Academy. I forget where, but. You know, and and in their class, they were talking about. They said, if you tore up, if you tore apart the system the way it stands now, what would it look like? What would you build it up to be? And the type of dreaming they were doing, and you know what my instantaneous reaction was as they were presenting these new ideals about how the world could operate. Do you know what my instantaneous gut reaction was to do? And I'm a, and I'm a progress. I'm like someone who wants to see it change. Oh, that won't work. Oh, that won't work. Oh, oh, yo. oh, good luck with that one. Instantaneous. And I had to check myself. And I said, hold on, you know, I'm doing what someone was doing to me when I was trying to pitch a way of reimagining how we do things. And so I'm going to always try my best to pour into these young folks and say, it's yours. You know, I, I, I did my part. It's yours. Make it what you think it can be. Make it better. Uh, and as my father would say, you know, make it better than when you got it, uh, when you leave. So um, I'm I'm excited about these young people that we're putting in positions to be able to really kind of take us to the next level. That's heartening to hear you say that. That's heartening to hear you say that. I like that story. It's an excellent, excellent story about the younger generations and and where their hearts and heads are at. Sometimes, like your initial reaction, you know, sometimes as you get older, you become a little bit pessimistic. Sometimes I call myself, get off my lawn O'Connor, you know, like I find myself doing that and I got to check myself. Shaking your fist. Yeah. Off my lawn. (laughs) New hope. Our name. Our promise. Founded in 1987 by Dr. George Orvin, New Hope has been a beacon of hope and healing for youth across the country for decades and is committed to expanding our impact across the Carolinas and beyond. At our flagship 150-bed treatment facility in Rock Hill, South Carolina, we provide 24-7 residential behavioral health care to male and female youth with significant mental health challenges. Our team of behavioral health care experts 
deliver comprehensive care in a safe and structured environment. When a youth enters our care, they are often at the lowest point in their life. They've endured years of trauma and rejection. They have accepted a narrative that their life is hopeless, that they are destined to repeat a cycle of despair. That's where we come in. We are here to provide new hope to every youth in our care. New hope through therapy that breaks down walls and builds up their self-worth. New hope through teachers and education tailored to their unique needs. New hope through round-the-clock medical staff ensuring their physical health. New hope through recreation, play, and new experiences that develop life skills. And new hope through the healing power of positive relationships with every one of our team members. We break cycles. We rewrite life stories. It's our name. It's our promise. We are New Hope. So, so Danya, I think we're probably going to wrap it up in a little bit here, but I'm curious around economic growth. You and I both live in Wake County, and I've lived in Wake County since 2005. And my family and I are fortunate enough to live near an elementary school, right? I have three kids, 13, 11, and eight. And I pinch myself every day when I walk to pick my kid up at the elementary school, which is right around the corner from my house. And I'm actually technically on the clock because I get to work from home sometimes, right? Yeah, yeah. And I and I try to think of families who don't have that that benefit of a, a good school nearby, with economic growth and school systems and families and kids and equity. How does that all play? I mean, how important schools to mm -hmm. your mission and your work? Well, you know, the school systems, uh, Wake County Public School Systems, are incredible partners with us with this conversation. You know, understanding that. The, the economic prosperity is directly connected to and is a correlation to the type of talent that we have and knowing that, you know, and let's just be honest, we have we have some some talent pipelines that are burgeoning and that are exploding. And then we have some deficiencies around other type of talent pipelines. And that's around trade skills. You know, that's around construction. Um, and so I say all that to say that, you know, the schools have to be a part of the conversation for inclusive prosperity. You know, to talk about some of the things that you're saying, you know, how do we make sure that disconnected young people are feeling connected while in school? How can the school be engaging to the family that may be disconnected? Uh, how can we think about, you know, and there's obviously, you know, policies that have been in the play, that have been in place to create more opportunities for the proximity of where you're schooling your neighborhood, you know, right. to look a bit closer, right? And I, I mean, and, and that's tough. That, that is a not that is not easy to do. Uh, to make sure everybody has sort of an equal access to, to school and then thinking about some schools because of where they're positioned, um, you know, and, the, and, and how they're funded, um, that they may have some deficiencies, thus, you know, impacting the quality teachers and the quality resources. So, you know, these conversations are always being had um, and, 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 and we've been excited. And I know, you know, there's this amazing uh, um, arm now, and I think they've been in place now for uh, about five years, five or six years. Um, it's the uh, Wake County Public Schools Office of Equity and Inclusion. And their office is responsible not just for equity conversations in the classroom, but also conversations about talent, conversations about staff development, about cultural competency, 
uh, to make sure that the schools are in place, the schools have the ability to be able to work with some of the challenges that maybe some of those things that are out of their control, you know, to, to make sure young people are going to get what they need. Um, so again, you know, I look at all of this, I, I feel like we're, it's sort of like the stock market that's trending up. Um, you know, we're going to have some divots, you know, we're going to have some bad policy. We're going to have some bad practices, but we're trending up. Um, and people are being mindful about exactly what you just said and saying within the conditions that we have, mm -hmm. what's the best, what's the best alternative? <laughs> if we had unlimited resources, um, you know, we can, we could, we can probably do some amazing things. Um, but the biggest resource to me is, is, is right here and right here. Um, and if we have the willingness and the appetite to look beyond our situation, you know, Mike, when you said my family is good, I can see my, my kids, I can walk them to school, but what about those other kids? Right. That to me is the start of it. That's the start of reimagining how we could be. So I appreciate, you know, the fact that you even have this platform, um, you know, to help advance the conversation, because without conversation, there's going to be this empathy gap, you know. And if we don't if we don't have empathy for people's lived experiences and we don't understand, you know, then there's an, an unintentionally um, possibilities to create more harm, to make the gaps further to make the schools further, to make the buildings bigger, to make the community smaller, to make, I mean, there's all those opportunities without thinking about and having, and, and, and I used to call it uh, GRITS, uh, uh, the acronym, uh, not girls raised in the South, but get right into their shoes, mm -hmm. you know? Get right into their shoes and let me walk in your shoes and let me understand what your journey is and then maybe that'll help impact what I have, my sphere of influence, you know, what I change and what I bring. We I always think about the essence of our work should be about every question that we should ask. If we have some responsibility to the community is who benefits and who's burdened. Start there. Danya, I think one thing is I'll, I'll, I'll comment on that. I just appreciate how you talk about these issues is I think sadly, in 2023, everything is political, right? Like, even if we don't want it to be, but like every topic um, gets gets political and then really quickly it gets tribal and then really quickly it gets left, right. And I think then that's that's where place that's where ideas go to die is when yeah. people go into those you know sides. And I think the way that you frame some of this arguments around economic justice um you know, I think you're, you do it in a way that it feels palatable and feels almost apolitical because I think it's making both head and heart arguments. I think it's both making, you know, um, pure um, altruistic empathy arguments, but also some pragmatic, hey, if you want to just talk dollars and cents, prevention is like seven to one better than intervention. You know, and so I think there's a there's a way to get both because you you need the support. These need to be, um, you need to get a coalition of support around anything with this stuff. Right. And so it does, and I also like how you frame a lot of our current challenges in our system more as a product of just that plate spun, somebody grabbed it, kept spinning it. It's not necessarily malicious, yeah. 
yeah. they were just they're just spinning it the same way that the person spun it before them who spun it before them and it's not necessarily like active um i just i don't you know in my heart and this could be ignorance or not but i just i don't interact with a lot of people who actively um detest the poor or want yeah. people to fail or would go and look at that 12 year old kid at a djj facility and feel good about that i just don't yes I don't yes. see that level of like, just like evil. I do see a lot of people who just live their life with their, and I'm one of them. Sometimes you just live your journey, your life and what impacts you locally. And so you're just, your prism is not very, um, but by doing that, you can maintain a lot of these systems and structures that yep. have downstream consequences that would actually hurt your heart if you actually got exposed to them. And so some people just, more and more in our lives, I think we're able to live lives where you're 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 only exposed to what you want to be exposed to. But I just think the way you frame it is really palatable to a big audience, which I think is so important because if somebody um, hears what you say and instantly gets defensive, then they stop listening, and then again it kills the conversation. Yeah, and I don't know how, how any progress happens. So I just want to like praise you for how you. Oh no, I think I could like. I, I, I could put you in a room with my conservative uncle and my liberal aunt, and I think they would both listen to you, which I think is a, that's a skill, man. That's a really important skill. I, listen, I, I can't take any credit for it. Um, one of the founders of communities and schools uh, named Bill Milligan, um, he shared with me as he, you know, he, he created this entity, but it was created based upon the kids that he was working with in Harlem. Um, he talked about, how do I connect what these kids' lived experiences are with people that are their offices are way up in these big buildings, you know? And, right. and so he would say he would go into these these offices, these corporate offices, and and then leaders in the community, and and he's out there pitching the work that he's the, the advocacy work he's doing with the kids on the street, and and he would always say when I walked into the room. The first thing I want to ask them, I'm going to look and scan their office. And then as I'm sitting there and I'm talking about the kids that I'm advocating for, he says, tell me a little bit about what you what you want for your kid. Mm. I see. I see. I see. You got a picture of your kids on your desk. Tell me a little bit about what you want for your kids. And then that person sits back and they start prattling off their how wow. much they are willing to give and pour and. You know, and they, and they go there, and he said, "Man, that's the, one of the, one of the most beautiful things I've heard." That I want to give that same opportunity to these kids down here, mm -hmm. and 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 to me, leading with your heart, um, leading with something that we all—I mean, to your point—who who doesn't want the best, you know, for our kids? how much we're willing to invest, that's where we got to talk strategy, yep. you know, but at the nexus of it is, no, you know, it's about those young folk. So, you know, my prayer is that, you know, that we get to a place where that no longer becomes, um, you know, we, we that that becomes, uh, you know, a mission drift. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the, the Maasai, um, which is an indigenous uh, community out of West Africa, their greetings, um, as they meet people is uh, Kasaria and Gera. It's Kasaria and Gera. And it, and, it, and it translates to, and how are the children? Think about that for a second. When I see you and I walk upon you and we are coming, how are the children? 
Because I know if the children are well, then guess what? You're good. Then we are well. So I love it. Yeah. It's hard to uh, end on any other note aside from that. But uh, as we've been wrapping up these episodes on stuff that that matters, uh, going to ask you the final question here. And this is a, a chance for you to, I guess, recap your overall message, which you've certainly been doing throughout the, the entirety of this episode. But I'm going to ask you anyway, for you, Danya, what is the stuff that matters? That, that is such a broad question, but I want to zoom in a little bit. Mm. Um, you know, what, what matters to me is conversation, you know, discourse. Um, you know, at the end of the day, if we can sit down and we can break bread or we can sh- share thoughts over a drink, or we can do anything that's going to remove any barrier for us to work across difference, you know, like just, just slowing down to just hear each other out. Um, and, and, and to, you know, at the same time to me, it's to slow down my own biases because my brain is conditioned to make shortcuts to a conclusion. And, and, you know, how do I disrupt that? Well, I got to sit down and listen I got to sit down and intentionally go and have conversations with people that I've never had conversations with before. And that's intentional because right now my life is, if I don't make intentions to, to connect with Matt or to understand what's going on in Jersey with Patrick, like if I don't have that opportunity to hear your story, I will continue to think that people in Jersey are crazy. You know what I mean? Like I will continually, you know, think about So, 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 so my thing, the stuff that matters to me, um, you know, I think foundationally is that we have to probably do a lot more listening than talking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think if we slow down and just listen uh, and we visit people's sacred spaces and we get invited into conversations that normally we don't get a chance and we get out of our silos, get, get, you know, get off the, get off the, the social media algorithm you know, that's going to keep giving you what you want, serve it up hot for you every day, break out of it, you know, hear somebody else's story and then see how that resonates with your own transformation. Well, you know, Donnie, I think when we, when we made up the name for this podcast, I don't think we knew what the heck we were doing or where it was going, but I can absolutely say that like the work you're doing is absolutely stuff that matters. And if you ever run for governor, you got to make your announcement on this podcast. Cause I think you get some. <laughs> no, sir. I, 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 I will. I, I'm going to I manifest that, that for you, but I'm just throwing it out there. I'm going to make that announcement right now. I will never run for political office in any shape, form or fashion. Uh, only because I feel like where I'm at is where I'm supposed to be. Okay. So it, it, it is not any, I love my, I love my leaders. I love them for, for certain. Um, but I, I'm, I'm sort of in the, the cut of, of Socrates who believes that, you know, those in power, you know, sometimes you can, uh, to, to be successful in it, sometimes you're compromising something. Uh, and so, you know, I tend to not compromise uh, too well with people and, you know, uh, and so I need to make sure I stay in the lanes that I stay in. So but shout out to all my legislators and all my commissioners and counselors and mayors and, and, and council. Oh, they just they're special. Well, their, seat, their seats are safe for now. It sounds like their seats are safe. <laughs> well, no, thank you so much for your time and for all you're doing. Truly. I think this was um, and we'd love to have you back sometime. Any Anytime you've got some new and interesting stuff happening up in um, Wake, because, again, I, I really think the power of like I think local communities is where the innovation starts. Yes. I think sometimes we wait for the, 
the, the whole country to do something cool. I don't think that's usually how it works. So, I mean, we'd love to hear more of what's happening in your local community and get the word out. I appreciate all that you all are doing. I appreciate the time. Thanks. Thanks, Tanya. Tanya, I appreciate it. Thanks so much. You can listen to this episode and all episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or you can watch episodes on YouTube. And if you're interested in being a part of the New Hope mission, please visit newhopetreatment.com for more information. Again, that's newhopetreatment.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.